The following program contains disturbing content that may be in settings and situations similar to your own. Discretion is advised. America's heartland, flyover country, shaking dice at the cafe for morning coffee, crop prices and rainfall, a day's work for a day's pay, business conducted on a handshake, where a man is as good as his word, church socials, town team baseball. But as the sun sets on this piece of Americana, there is no immunity from the darkness. There are things dare not spoken, and thoughts recessed in the corner of a man's mind, masked by the roar of a summer thunderstorm, hidden in the silence of winter snow, yet peering from the darkness in the shadows of the Midwest. May 30th, yep, 1980. It looked, um, he, he had told us that when he first looked at it, he thought it was uh, somebody blowing up now. He'd been caught up in corn cobs, going through the underneath this little bridge for drainage ditch, and that's just kind of what it looked like, only it wasn't. It was a human. On May 30th, 1980, Fairbolt County farmer Gilbert Sheavey was inspecting the flow of a drainage ditch near his property after a heavy rainfall. While checking County Ditch Number 5, located off a gravel road just north of Interstate 90, he discovered a body floating in the debris. A young woman left naked, her head shaved, fingernails removed, and some sort of drawstring ligature around her neck. There was no clothing found, no purse, no identification. Although the I-90 area had its fair share of criminal activity, some violent, some just plain evil, there was no suspect and no motive. At least not until 1988, when local law enforcement received a phone call from the Smith County Sheriff's Office in Tyler, Texas. Seems a self-confessed child molester was dropped at their doorstep by his pastor. As the child molester and his pastor had time to talk after his incarceration, his memories made him believe he may have had something to do with that dead woman in County Ditch Number 5. In August of 1988, Robert Nelson, self-confessed child molester, former Minnesota State Trooper, was remanded to the Texas Department of Corrections to serve a life sentence on two counts of aggravated criminal sexual conduct involving a minor family member. And now, Robert Nelson will have a sort of homecoming as he returns to Minnesota to find accountability for criminal acts committed there. And welcome to Shadows of the Midwest, Season 1, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5, Episode 4, A Sort of Homecoming. Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, Report of Investigation. Submitted Special Agent Robert A. Berg, 32789. Subject, Robert Leroy Nelson, DOB 8846. On 327 of 89, Robert Leroy Nelson was picked up by the below officers from the Texas Department of Corrections in Huntsville, Texas, for transportation back to the state of Minnesota. Personnel assigned, Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension Special Agent Robert A. Berg, Chief Deputy Jerry Cabe, Fairbolt County Sheriff's Office. On 327 1989, the above officers picked up Robert Leroy Nelson at the Texas Department of Corrections in Huntsville, Texas, for transportation back to Minnesota to face charges of criminal sexual conduct in the first degree. At approximately 845, Mr. Nelson was given his rights via Miranda by Agent Berg. States, that he understands those rights and indicates that prior to giving a formal statement that he wished to contact an attorney. However, he qualifies this by stating that he is willing to talk about the Fairbolt County Jane Doe homicide investigation as well as the crim sex investigation in general terms. He goes on to advise that all the information that he has provided to investigators in the past is true and correct. 
During the plane trip back to Minnesota, Mr. Nelson indicated that he wanted to cooperate with law enforcement authorities in clearing up the Jane Doe homicide, devising that he recalls bits and pieces of the incident, however the details he does not recall. He further advises that it would be his wish to seek some type of psychological counseling, that when his attorney is appointed for him, he would be willing to attempt to work out some type of arrangement whereby he could seek psychological counseling to bring back the memories that are, quote, locked inside of his mind. End of report. Retired Faribault County Deputy Jerry Wells. I started dispatch jailing in 88, and I remember when they brought Nelson back from Texas, I booked him in, and boy, he had he had a whole different attitude then. He's meek and mild and quiet and cooperative. Well, he was a uh, he was not a nice nice man. I, in 1976, I started working part time for the city of Bloor. And uh, I had an occasion to have coffee and stuff with him, you know. And uh, he was just an arrogant. He just wasn't like a normal person. Robert Nelson would spend uh, from basically the end of March of 1989 through August of 1989 in the... uh, Faribault County Jail. During that time, details of the criminal sexual conduct accusations and the Jane Doe homicide were worked through and evaluated. During that time, he went through uh, some medical evaluations, and on April 29, 1989, he was given a psychological evaluation by a Dr. Kenneth A. Perkins of Minneapolis. The following is the conclusion of Dr. Perkins' evaluation. I do not find any evidence in psychological testing, nor in my clinical impressions from interview or interacting with him over several hours that he is showing any significant amount of psychological pathology. I do not find evidence to suggest neurotic dysfunction. Certainly no organic dysfunction is suggested, and I clearly do not find any evidence to suggest thinking disorder. In addition, I am not impressed that there is a presence of any kind of memory deficit or deficit in his general makeup. Mr. Nelson relates in a very affable manner, but also as one who is extremely controlling and manipulating in his style of responding. He is extremely self-centered and very self-directing. From subtle paranoid functioning may be present, but for the most part, a sociopathic personality style and with characteristics that are simply supported in his early history, which was a time that he describes himself as clearly having been using persons in his lifestyle and in the character of his relationship to others. The initial purpose for my involvement in Mr. Nelson's case was to potentially assist in investigation of vague admissions that Mr. Nelson has been making sometime about his possibly having been involved in a number of criminal activities, especially homicides both in Minnesota as well as elsewhere, and that my assistance was sought to assess the veracity of these admissions as well as to assess the likelihood he may have in fact carried out one or more of these criminal activities. It is my impression from all that I know and have experienced about Mr. Nelson that he is a very intellectually bright and talented man for manipulating others through his verbalizations that he continues to, through numerous interviews, to hedge and to qualify that these are impressions or emotional experiences that he has, but he continues not to present them as memories nor as things that he can admit to being certain of in any realistic manner. Thus, I basically find Mr. Nelson to not be credible insofar as any of the admissions he makes, and the only conclusion I can come to is that his statements are self-serving in some manner and not believable. I hope, Mr. Johnson, that this information is helpful to your understanding concerning Robert. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact me. Yours sincerely, Kenneth A. Perkins, Ph.D., Licensed Consulting Psychologist. On May 24th of 1989, 
Robert Nelson was put under hypnosis by a deputy in a neighboring county. I uh, brought the transcripts to that session to a certified hypnotherapist to get his opinion on it, and he felt that the uh, questions were rather leading. In actuality, uh, going through the uh, entire dictation, there was no new revelations provided by the hypnosis session. And on a sidebar to the hypnosis session, the deputy that conducted the hypnosis session later became Watanwan County Sheriff. In September of 2017, at 83, he was questioned by Blue Earth County investigators at his residence in Medelia about the sexual assault of two girls. Later that afternoon, the former sheriff took his own life. What I'm going to share with you now is the audio recording of the last interview conducted by the Faribault County Sheriff's Office with Robert Leroy Nelson on 717 of 1989. The investigator is Jerry Cabe, and just as a warning, uh, again for graphic content, and uh, this interview will run approximately 54 minutes. July 17th, 1989, and it's approximately 11, 17 hours, and we're in the city of Blue Earth in my office at the uh, Sheriff's Office, and I'm the, in the company of Robert Nelson, and uh, I'm uh, Jerry Cabe, uh, Deputy Sheriff, and we're uh, just in the process of conducting an interview, and first of all, Bob, I'd like to inform you of your rights, uh, your Miranda warning. Uh, you've had that uh, read to you several times throughout this investigation, isn't that correct? Yes, sir. And um, you've, uh, you have an attorney, it's uh, Cal Johnson? Yes. And uh, he has told me before that if we'd like to uh, talk about this or if you'd like to help us in this investigation with the uh, murder of Jane Doe, uh, this would be all right with him. Has he told you the same thing? Yes. And uh, is there, do you have any desire to talk to an attorney or call him or be more informed of your rights? No. Uh, if you feel comfortable with it? Yes, I'm ready to, ready to proceed. Okay, Bob, uh, probably just as a, in a summary form, you can just kind of tell me what happened in the last part of May 1980, um, as you're aware, we're talking about the, the girl known as Jane Doe that was found in a dredge ditch uh, east of Blue Earth, Minnesota. We've talked about this before, and, and maybe just as a summary uh, form, you can just start out with what you remember and just kind of go through it, and I'll maybe ask a couple of questions uh, uh, throughout the thing. Why don't you just go ahead then, Bob? Okay, the... Uh The incident occurred, I believe it was a Sunday night. The uh, 524 of 80 was the night that I had an accident with Frankie Drake. <clears throat> I took the following day off, which was a Saturday, and I worked a Sunday night. I worked, I believe, 3 to midnight. Because my car was wrecked, I borrowed a car. I think it was Bob Shane's car that I borrowed. But because I was still stiff and sore and hurting uh, from the results of the Drake accident. Uh, those couple of days, the Sunday and the Monday that I worked before I took off on vacation, I didn't do very much. I just uh, drove around here and there and parked uh, along the side of the road and spent some time at uh, the sheriff's office and basically just kind of put in some time, didn't do very much patrolling. <coughs> that Sunday night, I was out east of Blue Earth and uh, parked up on the north side of the Bryceland Exchange on I-90. I was parked off the off the uh, freeway on the uh, road that goes off to the north, and I was maybe a block away from the the freeway interchange where I could kind of watch traffic, but I wasn't. You wouldn't notice the police car there. Do you recall the intersecting road there, north of Bryson? No, 
I recall that to the north it's gravel and to the south it's pavement. Okay. And that's, uh, I don't remember the road number. If it's if it's the Braceland Road, it'd be, what, 263? Does that sound right? 253? I don't even don't even remember anymore, Jeff. 253. But it's gravel to the north and pavement to the Braceland Exchange. Sure. Or the Braceland Turnoff. Anyway, that's probably about 9.30 at night. All I know is, that it, you know, it's it's like uh, 9.30 at night or so. It's completely dark. And uh, it's before, you know, like the 11 o'clock coffee break time. So that's about approximately 9.30 is, is what I'm thinking. And uh, I saw a van. I remember it to be dark colored. I think it was blue, and it would have been in the middle middle 70s. Ford van drove up, stopped at the stop sign, and sat there for a little while. It was westbound on Interstate 90. And at the time, it would have been off on the exit ramp at the stop sign. And it sat there for a few seconds and the side door opened and a gal got out. I believe there were two other people in the front of the van. I'm like, you know, like I said, I'm, a, I'm half a block or a block north of there, so I'm, I'm a little ways north where I, I can see, but no, it's not real clear. Anyway, the door shut on the van, and the thing went back down the freeway and back westbound on I-90. And the gal is standing there, and she crosses the road and starts down the ramp, starts walking down the freeway ramp. I had been sitting on the north side of that interchange and sitting with all the lights off and, and uh, just, uh, just the radios on so I could hear any calls. And I started the car up, this is maybe three or four minutes later, and drove up to where she was walking down the freeway, towards, down the ramp towards the freeway. And I stopped sort of alongside of her got out. She would have been on the right-hand side of the car, and I was on the left-hand side. She was up by the front front fender, front corner. And uh, I asked her for some identification, and she produced some kind of identification. I just remember it being a, a plastic identification card. Now, the name that I'd given you before, I believe is correct. I'm just about dead positive on the first name. That's probably the only name I would have remembered to talk to her, you know, to carry on a conversation. But, uh... Can you tell me the name again, Bob? It was either Catherine or Kathleen. As I remember. Or... Either that or, or something very, very similar to it, but that's the name that pops in my mind. And the other names that I gave you for a middle name was Marie, and the last name was Jurgensen or Jorgensen. I'd be, you know, I looked at this identification one time for a little while, maybe nine years ago. The first name I'm just about positive of, and the other names... You know, uh, are the names that I don't know where I picked them out of my memory, but <clears throat> I'm pretty sure on that first name, and relatively sure of the other two names. Did she have any noticeable brogue to her, like uh, uh, um, from the east or uh, south, or from what I remember of talking to her? Uh, there wasn't any real noticeable accent. Maybe. It sounded like Midwest or maybe just kind of East, but not 
not like a real harsh uh, New York accent or Boston accent or anything like that. It was, of course, Midwest includes a lot of territory, but it was kind of a Midwestern voice, maybe with a little Eastern accent. I don't know if that would, I don't know where that would put it. Anyway, uh, I uh, asked her to get in the car and I got in. I did not write her name down on, you know, I didn't uh, call it in or anything like that. <coughs> and Normally you would, wouldn't you? And usually, you usually I would, yeah. Check her out for one or something like that? Usually. Not always. If it was somebody that, you know, if it was somebody with a, a stalled car or something like that, I don't know. Usually sure. hitchhikers I would have running a, a check on to see if they were wanted. In this case, I didn't. I don't know if I just never got to it or if, uh, if I just uh, didn't do it because of what I thought might happen later or what. I don't know. But anyway, I did not run her name. Uh, anyway, we're in the car and we headed west on Interstate 90. I had asked her, you know, what happened. She told me that she'd been headed west, and she was, uh, I can't remember the details, but here's the, the gist of the conversation was that she was headed west to visit some friends, and we're talking like Oregon or, or someplace further west. And, uh, the gist of it also was that she was riding with these people in the van and uh, I, again I got the impression that she that they weren't uh, long lost friends or anything but that she'd known them for a short time that might be you know a week or a few days but the, anyway she'd hitched a ride west with them <coughs> I also got the impression that that uh, they'd had an argument in the van and that uh, she'd been asked to cooperate with them sexually somehow and, and had either refused or or got tired of it or whatever and, and uh, that's what caused her to get kicked out. As we headed west on Interstate 90 towards Blue Earth As we talked, she uh, the way that she talked was sort of leading. And by that, I mean that that uh, that she was uh, kind of flirting sexually, and of course, I was returning that probably. We uh, continued west on Interstate 90, got off at the Blue Earth Exchange, and headed south in towards town, and then I cut back east on the gravel. <coughs> now, I hadn't traveled those roads for nine years, I guess it was, until we went over some of them here a couple months ago. but. Uh, that's uh, basically the gravel road that goes east of about where the Dairy Queen is now. It yeah. wasn't there before, right? It is now. Yeah, the, well, that road was there before. I'd traveled. The road was there, but the Dairy Queen wasn't. Right? Uh, yeah. I think it was at that time. Oh, okay. okay. I think it was. It may have been. Yeah. I think it was brand new. Anyway, the, the gravel road that I turned back east on was on the was at the, where the Dairy Queen is right now. And... Uh, Traveled east, crossed over the freeway to the north, and traveled east again on some more gravel. Ended up about, I suppose, about eight or nine miles east of Blue Earth, uh, on the north side of the freeway, on a gravel road, just driving. And 
was looking for a quiet place, you know, a place out of the way, because uh, the conversation by then is uh, she had led me to believe that that she would cooperate with with uh, the advances that I, I was making. It was kind of a two-way street. She was talking uh, as to lead me on, and I was eating it up and and uh, wanted to take advantage of the situation. Anyway, we got out east a few miles. And I drove off in a field approach. Again, we're on the north side of the freeway on a gravel road that parallels the freeway about a half mile off the freeway. Turned into a field approach and uh, drove back in the field to a place where we were probably 100 yards, 150 yards north of the freeway. And it's, uh, it's alongside a drainage ditch at that point. There's a telephone pole. Well, it's a telephone pole, it's a, a pole, a light pole, a telephone pole right there. And it's got some kind of a box on it, like uh, an electrical box of some kind. And I remember that being in the background. At that point, uh, I got out of the car and got around to her side of the car and opened the door and she got out. And, and uh, I began to uh, make advances towards her, and she sort of cooperated, but I got the feeling that uh, she wasn't really uh, going to do what, what she had kind of hinted or led me to believe, you know, that she uh, wanted to do something for me. At that point, she had on a jacket, a t-shirt, and blue jeans. At that point, I had her take the jacket off, and as I was kind of messing with the t-shirt, she, well, I won't say she panicked, but she realized that, you know, she... I realized, and she realized, I guess, that she either changed her mind or what didn't mean it in the first place or whatever. And uh, at that point, I uh, sort of forced her to uh, take off the T-shirt, and that's when she began to uh, indicate that she wasn't going to go through with any sexual advances. At that point, and at that time, then, I handcuffed her with her hand, hands behind her back <clears throat> and caused her to perform oral sex on me. And uh, by this time, She's uh, very upset, and what she's talking about is, is uh, getting back at me, getting me fired, getting me put in jail, all kinds of things, rightfully so, but uh, the I don't like to use it as an excuse, but the anger and the frustration and, and the whole lot of stuff that was buried deep inside of me that I didn't even know was there was uh, was coming out in, in, in my assault of this lady and, and, and in the things that I did next. And she, uh, again, like I said, she was screaming and carrying on that she was going to see me fired and in jail and in prison and, and all kinds of things. And, and instead of 
just a kind of a sexual interlude that maybe would have been forgotten and passed off if I hadn't forced her to do anything. Now I was looking at some serious problems. You know, and this all goes through your mind in a, in a second or two, or not even that, maybe. But now I had not only done something that was wrong in, in as far as the policy and everything else, and wrong in the eyes of, of uh, law enforcement as far as having her in the car and, and coming on to her as an officer to try to get some sexual favor. Now I'd actually done something and caused her to perform a sexual act on me that she was not cooperating with. And like I said, I was in in very deep, way over my head for what I had done at this time. And she's yelling and hollering, and, and I know she's right. You know, she'll, she's going to see me in prison and have my job and and, uh, and all kinds of things. And I know she's absolutely right. And to try to shut her up, to try to scare her into somehow believing that uh, she should be afraid of me and, and so on, I found a pliers, I think it was in the trunk of the car. Again, this is a borrowed car, but everybody's got a toolbox with you know, pliers and a screwdriver and some tools in it. I found a pliers and I, I threatened to pull off or pull out her fingernails if she didn't shut up. And that only led to more abuse and screaming and carrying on. And like I said, something inside me, uh, you hear it all the time, the, the phrase, something inside me snapped, but all the frustration and all the anger and plus all the, all that I had done in the last few minutes that she was right about, you know, that, that uh, what I did is yanked out, I believe, two or three fingernails to show her I meant business. And I realized that it had gone so far, so fast, you know, in a few minutes' time. In five minutes' time, it had gone from stepping out of the car and and, and uh, making sexual advances to her all the way to the point of of uh, these threats and actually pulling out a fingernail. And that all happened in a in a few minutes time. And I was in so deep and so far and the anger and the hurt and, and all the fear that was inside of me that she was going to do exactly what she said, and she's right. She would have been right in everything she said. All that kind of snapped, and I grabbed the, the cord or the string or whatever it was, or the pull string, the drawstring in the bottom of her jacket, which was an army-type field jacket, you know, with a drawstring bottom. I pulled that out, tied it around her neck from behind, and this, again, this happened in just a couple of seconds' time. Was she still handcuffed, Bob? Yes, still handcuffed, on her knees, on the ground. And I stood behind her. I was, had been behind her to, you know, with the, the pliers to pull the fingernail. <coughs> because her hands were handcuffed behind her. And uh, I took that rope and 
and put it around her neck. It was knotted in the front, you know, with the... Uh, I've shown you on paper before. I, I believe it was knotted through twice. It may have been once, but it was... Uh, I didn't think about how I was knotting the rope. I just simply, you know, made a loop in the rope and put it around her neck, had one end in each hand, and strangled her from behind. And uh, I remember the anger and the emotion and all that, that, man, it like built up in almost like out of nowhere in just a minute or two, it was, it was crazy. And uh, I remember strangling her, and uh, the hatred, and the, man, I hated myself, I hated her, I hated everything at that moment. Was she trying to fight you quite a bit, uh, <clears throat> did you easily overpower her? Well, like I said, she was on her knees, mm -hmm. I had her handcuffs behind her back, I didn't have the handcuffs on super tight. No, I mean, they weren't really clamped down real tight. So, I mean, there weren't there weren't going to be big marks all over her. I mean, I, I knew better than that. And uh, she wasn't all that, you know, she wasn't uh, a midget, but she wasn't all that big. It would be 5, 6, 115, 120 pounds, somewhere in there. And I had the advantage in several different ways. The, it happened, the, I, there wasn't really much time for a struggle, Jerry. It just, in a minute or two's time, it went from from having her perform sex on me until she was dead was only a couple of minutes, maybe not even that. And it just, from the time that the commotion started where she was, going to get me and get my job and all this stuff until she was dead was a couple minutes time. I mean, it, it wasn't very long. When she was giving you the oral sex, were you standing up then and she yes, was underneath? I was standing up she was underneath. Did she have most of her clothes off then? Or? Jacket was off. T-shirt was off. And, uh, she was wearing blue jeans, and I believe I had those down around her knees. The uh, at, th at that point, of course, now she's dead, and I. Uh, took the handcuffs off and pulled the rest of her clothes off, which would have been just, you know, the blue jeans. And was she wearing underpants? As I remember, she was not wearing a brassiere. She was not wearing any underwear. And I don't think she was wearing any shoes. She had a purse was uh, leather, medium size, kind of a baggy thing, closed on the top. It was dark brown or black. Uh, I think I've drawn a picture of it, so you know you know what it looks like, sort of. Uh, I don't remember if it had a strap or not. My impression was that it did not have a strap on it. It was just a, a purse. And uh, anyway, I rolled her off into the ditch, the uh, drainage ditch. Were you fairly close to the ditch? Yeah, just 10, 15 feet away, maybe. Not even that. Um, remember, there was water in the ditch, but it wasn't that much. But I mean, that wasn't 
you know, we were about 100 yards from the freeway, and I, and, uh, there was no, there was no houses in sight, no, no roads in sight, in fact, where the, where that place is, you can't see any road except the freeway, and there's a fence in between that and the freeway. And I, uh, picked up her clothes and put them in a pile, and I did not leave the clothes there or the purse. And I believe I put the clothes just in a bundle and, and the purse in the back of the, in the trunk of the squad car. I remember putting, the, I'm pretty sure I remember putting the clothes in a white plastic garbage bag. In other words, I didn't, I did not throw them in a dumpster or in a wayside rest or anything like that. I, I remember the trunk of the squad car being open and putting them in a white plastic garbage bag. And that might have been later after I got home that night. You know, because first of all, it's a borrowed car. Secondly, I didn't want that stuff left in, in the car. And, and so, uh, I remember putting the clothes in a white plastic garbage bag. And I don't believe I put the purse in the same bag. The clothes I ended up eventually hauling out to the, I believe they went out to the dumps to the landfill. Okay, we changed the tape to the other side, uh, side B. Uh, go ahead, Ben. Well, like I was saying, if, if I'd have, the first impression, if I'd have seen her bald, a shaved-headed woman, I probably would have run some kind of a check on her to, you know, that, uh, that's weird out here in this part of the country. And, and, uh, I don't know if, if things would have happened the way they were. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not giving excuses. I'm just saying that if, if I'd have noticed at first that the lady was bald, uh, that's an oddity, and, and I would have probably run a license check on her. And, of course, once you once you call in a name on somebody, you don't go off and bump them off. You don't go off and murder them, you know. You don't do that. <laughs> so <clears throat> I really believe that she had on a wig because that's my first impression is that, that she was... Just a young lady, you know, like I said, average height, 5'6", 120, 125 pounds, uh, medium length brown or reddish brown hair, you know, shoulder length uh, or above, a little above the shoulder, collar length, and, and uh, the baldness would have stood out in my mind like a, like a neon light. So that's why I think it didn't, you know, nothing, it didn't happen that I noticed that right away. I believe she was wearing a wig and she was, uh, it didn't come up in, you know, in conversation as to where she was from or where she was going other than just what I remember being, uh, uh, she was headed out west for some, visit some friends and she'd Obviously, she'd come from somewhere east of where we were. One session back when uh, when you were hypnotized, uh, you remember that when uh, Jack uh, hypnotized you? Yeah. I, I think at that time you recalled uh, that the wig came off at the altercation by the ditch. Uh, does yeah. that kind of come back to you now? I think that's what happened. Is I had no idea that was a wig until... Uh, about the time where I got her out of the car and in the earlier part of, of this statement, you know, I said she got out of the car and, and uh, began to kind of back off from what we had been talking about. You know, she was uh, uh, backing out, sort of, from what I thought might be going to happen. And what I'm, what I'm speaking about is backing off from what She had, had uh, 
alluded to or, or hinted at some kind of a uh, sexual reward or whatever you want to use. Anyway, when I'd had her take her jacket off, that wasn't a problem yet, but I think when, when she finally started to kind of put up a struggle that she wasn't going to go through with this really happening, uh, that's when I pulled her t-shirt off, and I think that's when her, you know, when her wig would have popped off, either that or right after that. Uh, and, you know, her wig would have ended up on the ground or someplace. <coughs> Do you remember loading up the wig with the rest of her clothes and putting it in the trunk? Yeah, I, I put that up, put that in with the clothes. I picked it up. And that was discarded with the rest of the clothes and the jacket uh, and, and uh, those type of things, other than the purse. Yeah. When when she was handcuffed, when you was having oral sex, did did uh, did you uh, climax in her mouth? Yes. Uh, when she was still in the car. Um, before she got out at the ditch there, were you two just kind of exchanging uh, kisses back and forth, or were you touching her, or was she touching you, or was she leading you on to any extent? To well, we were leading each other on, I guess. Uh, when she was talking about what, in the van, you know, that uh, she was uh, kicked out of, it was because she said that she wouldn't put out or got tired of putting out or, or whatever, I think that was the terms. And from there we got to talking about, you know, what it was that she wouldn't do and so on. And it, she was uh, kind of teasing and I was, of course, eating it up and going right along with it. And instead of being concerned about what the people in the van might have been doing to her, I was concerned with what I could get done. And. Uh, it was kind of a mutual thing, you know. She was enjoying the the teasing, and I, of course, I was I was falling right in line with it. When it came down to, you know, when I pulled off the road and, and up by the drainage ditch, a few minutes later, I stopped the car. Uh, hadn't had any contact with her. Uh, just other than talking. Other than other than talking, and it was just the talking was kind of the setup what set things up. I walked around the car and got out, <coughs> and that's when, I don't, I, I don't believe that I even kissed her. I, you know, I suspected that was probably what I was going to start to do, uh, you know, some, some necking and some kissing and fondling and stuff or whatever, but uh, it never really got to that because she, you know, I was already, I was already in trouble as far as, uh, you know, here I am uh, on duty in a police car and, and uh, giving this gal a ride, which is, isn't any great big deal, but then talking this way to this lady and then now here we are out in the middle of nowhere and, Take the plane and know, return. yeah, that's kind of it. And then she's led me on. That's not, I'm not saying that's her fault. I mean, that's just the way that the conversation was, and I ate it up. She wouldn't have led me any place if I hadn't wanted to cooperate, you know. And uh, when I got out of the car and, and had her step out, then she kind of started to back out, and, and I wasn't, you know, at that point. Uh, it just accelerated rapidly. You know? I was already, you know, you don't think about these things consciously, but I was already, I was already in trouble. If she made any kind of a squawk at all, I was already in trouble. Hmm. Was she uh, an average, nice-looking girl, as far as you remember? And like you say, she was kind of a at five, six. Uh, she may have been close, like you say, to a medium build. Uh, Average. She was average build. She wasn't some. She wasn't some sweat hog, and she wasn't a real knockout. Seemed to be clean. She just seemed to be. Yeah. She wasn't. I don't think it would have gone 
anywhere if she was some, you know, I use the word sweat hog, but you know what I sure. mean. I mean some, some, uh, somebody that, uh, dirty and grubby and, and so on. She seemed to be, I guess, in, in some respects, just uh, average size, average build, average complexion. Uh, I guess I'd say pretty, but you know, she wasn't a knockout, but she was, she was attractive. And, uh, was she wearing any jewelry, uh, a watch, or rings, or anything? I don't remember any jewelry at all. Uh, from what I, from the impression I got that that uh, seems like she only had a couple dollars in her purse when I went through it later. If that, I mean, it was hardly nothing. And if she'd ever had any jewelry, it was long since gone, or pawned, or hawked, or sold, or, or whatever. I don't remember her wearing any jewelry at all. Do you remember? Fingernails in particular, were they long uh, fingernails or were they short? They weren't real short, like chewed down real short, and they weren't long, elegant uh, nails. They would have just been, you know, I hate to keep using the word average, but they were, uh, they were a woman's fingernails, but not the long, you know, not from somebody that had never done any work with their long fingernails with polish and stuff on them. Do you remember if they were polished or just plain? I don't believe they were. They were just plain. <clears throat> now, after this happened, Bob, uh, she was strangled and killed and thrown into the ditch. Um, I believe we went by the place you directed us to, the place, the location where this pole is. We yeah. just kind of went to the back part of the uh, area uh, east of Blurth and the gravel and uh, et cetera. And uh, you kind of directed us to this place. And um, it was the kind of place that you told us about before, with the pole and the meters, and it yep. looked like it might have been a dryer site beside the uh, ditch. And as far as I know, it's the only one in the area, that only location in the area that looks like that. Um, you more or less found that yourself uh, when Roger and I took the office. So yeah, that looks we, like we, the driveway there. we took the, you know, I hadn't driven these roads for nine years, but we took the the way that I thought we had gone when I talked to you guys when I was down in Texas. Uh, I, and I told you, you know, you turn here and you turn there and so on. And uh, a couple of the roads that I had thought had gone through weren't the roads that I remember, you know. We're talking about nine years ago. And some of these roads I traveled pretty frequently, like some of the main roads, County Road 11 and some of the cut-acrosses close to Blue Earth and close to town. But, uh, but no, I, when we went out on that, drive and we found that spot. In fact, when we, when we came back, I told you that uh, when we came back from when you flew me up here and we drove down the freeway to come back to Blue Earth, we went by that spot. In my heart, I looked at that spot and it wasn't the one I was expecting it to be, but I looked at that spot and I said, that's the place. I said it to myself. We didn't say anything to you, but it was kind of obvious. You know, you, you knew we were thinking about the same thing. I guess. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we came to the down the road a few more miles closer to Blue Earth to the, the spot that I kind of thought it was. And I looked at that and I said, that isn't the spot. That's what I, where I thought I might have been, but that's not the spot. When we came back from that location that day, and then um, it made a little more sense to you and us both when we came back uh, on the gravel on the north side of the freeway, you even mentioned the farm place that was coming up ahead. Yeah, I knew. The directions that I gave you, I had some of the landmarks. In my mind, I had some of the landmarks. I mean, I knew some of the places I had driven that night. But they didn't, uh, they turned out to be, you know, places that are on the route that we took to come back because uh, because of my confusion being gone and not driven these roads for like, you know, nine years or so that, that uh, the roads that I, you know, I had said I went north off the freeway and doubled back. That just didn't work out. What I had done is gone south and then crossed over to the north side of the freeway at County Road 11. And of course, I knew that road like the back of my hand. I'd been on that road hundreds of times. That gravel road and County Road 11 and and uh, east off of County Road 11 even quite a bit. I think you even remembered on the way back there, uh, coming back from on the uh, west on the north side of the interstate, you mentioned the 
Wessel's frame place, sir. Mm -hmm. You remember doing that makes, when you took it up makes there? a little curve, uh, just a little gentle curve, kind of sort of back and forth, and there's a brick farm place off on the north side. I knew that. And then just beyond that, there's a drainage ditch, and uh, just beyond that is the... Uh, well, anyway, I, I remembered some of the landmarks that... <coughs> that I, you know, I knew were there. I just, from a thousand miles away in Texas and nine years back, I, I'd given the wrong directions, but the landmarks were still in my head. I could find the landmarks. I knew the, I knew the roads. And that road, you know, we're talking about parallels the freeway, about half a mile on the north side of the freeway, and goes by every one of the landmarks that I mentioned. Great. <coughs> The, uh, at the time that I told you, when we went out there, you and I and Roger went out there back in April uh, to find this spot in the field where the uh, murder occurred, I had no idea at that time which way the drainage flow was on that drainage ditch or anything. All I knew was that was the spot. And uh, I had no idea, in fact, I had no way of knowing where the body was recovered. I, I'd never seen that in the reports. And, Never read it in the paper or anything. I was out of town when that happened. I was in, uh, in down in St. Louis. We'd gone down for a wedding. After the uh, murder happened, Bob and Chris, when you come back from the site there, you said it was like between 9 and 11 o'clock, 11, which uh, meaning uh, about probably coffee time when we were working on the night shift and stuff like that. Do you remember having coffee or who you possibly met with? Uh, uh, when you had coffee afterwards, I know this is a long time back. Well, I was working night shift. Friday night I'd crashed and had the accident with Frankie Drake. Saturday night I took off sick leave because I was stiff and sore. Did, where did you go the next day? Could, could we? Uh, Saturday? Yeah. Uh, I think Saturday I cleaned out some of the stuff out of my squad car and I spent a good deal of that Saturday with Marcia. Okay. I told you that before. Yeah, uh, yes. I'm not proud of any of this garbage. Makes me sick, but Marcia's the truth is, oh, girl, girlfriend, yes. Marsha's a gal that I was having an affair with at that time. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I spent most of that day with her. Sunday I worked, 3:30 to midnight. Dick Hall was my partner, and Monday I worked 3:30 to midnight. And that was a holiday. Monday was a holiday. Sunday night, uh, I think. Now, like I said, I, Sunday and Monday I didn't do much because uh, I was stiff and sore. I didn't do a lot of work. Patrolling. Sunday would have been probably about the 26th of May, 1980. Sunday would have been the 26th of May, 1980, yeah. 24th was Friday night when I had the accident with Frank. And uh, I suspect we stopped for coffee someplace. I mean, we always did. Do you think you were able we to, went act, to act natural? Uh, did you... Were you able to handle that uh, pretty well? Or? See, for the next, after that accident, for the next few days, I was stiff and sore and kind of mentally uh, quiet and out of it a little bit. And, and uh, I mean, if anybody would have noticed something goofy about me, they'd have probably figured that I was just stiff and sore and quiet and, and moody from, you know, from this thing happening. And you were hurting from there, yes? I remember yeah, that. I was. I had uh, bruises and stuff all over me. You know, if this gal would have, up a struggle and, and there would have been any bruises or marks on me from her, it wouldn't have been any it wouldn't have been noticeable. I had so many bruises on me from the thing with Frankie. <clears throat> I mean a couple of extra bruises, you know, if she kicked me or something in, 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 in the fight would just flat would not have been something noticeable. Do you I remember had, if she tried to kick you in her? She, she put up a little bit of a struggle, but like I said, she wasn't that big and I had uh, all the advantages. She was handcuffed, she was on her knees and I'm a whole lot bigger than she was. Was she hollering and swearing and uh, trying to. Yeah. Was there any blood from her fingers? Did that get on you or anything? Was there some blood? Yeah, from pulling out the, you know, fingernails. From pulling out the fingernails, that uh, there's going to be some blood. Her hands are behind her back, and uh, first of all, it would not have probably would not have gotten on me. I mean, it would have been just blood that was oozing and not squirting out, you know. And secondly, if, if I'd have gotten a couple of 
splotches of blood on me, you'd have never noticed it on the trousers, on the maroon uniform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'd have blood all over me and never see it. <coughs> Is there anything else that you can think of, Bob, that we uh, possibly missed here uh, that you could add to this? Not at this time. I'd be more than happy to give you any details or anything else that, that comes up, but uh, just that uh, this whole thing is, is uh, just Ooh. a progression of <coughs> going from from something stupid to all this you know, the, the sudden realization that uh, not only am I in trouble, I'm talking about before I forced her to do anything, I'm already in trouble with, you know, just having her in the car and that kind of stuff. And it just, it went in three, four minutes from just having a moderate problem of having her in the car all the way to the point where I had forced her to, to uh, perform a sexual act. I had hurt her in many ways, you know, emotionally and, and everything else, and then all this anger and rage and hatred and, and everything else that, man, I, like I said, Jerry, I, at that time, the, the emotions is so powerful that I, that I remember is Man, I hated myself. I hated her. I hated. I hated everything. I hated what I was doing with Marcia. But I didn't want to give it up. You know, I just hated what I was doing. I had a wife and kids and, and a job and a career and, and probably a million things that went through my mind at once. And all of it is just, you know, selfishness and hate. And I didn't realize how much hatred and how much hurt. To, it was inside. No, you, you're probably <coughs> kind of like us. You'd just like to get it over with and get this to rest, right? Yeah. That's, that's all I've wanted since I contacted you guys first way back in what, February? That's correct. January, we, February. We haven't promised or threatened you or anything in that no. respect? No, not at all. It's been... Uh, it's been a difficult deal because it's been nine years ago. It's been very painful, and it's had some some goofy twists here and there. But all I want to do is, is see that the truth comes out and gets taken care of, even if it's awful. It's better than than. Uh, than not being known. <coughs> okay, at this time I think uh, we'll conclude the, the tape, Bob, and uh, thanks. And the uh, time now is 12.12 p.m. State of Minnesota, County of Fairbolt, 5th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Robert Leroy Nelson, Defendant, Sentence. You, Robert Leroy Nelson, have pled guilty to the crimes of criminal sexual conduct in the first degree in violation of Minnesota Statute 609.342, subsection 1, and manslaughter in the first degree in violation of Minnesota Statute 609.20, subsection 1, said statute providing for maximum penalty for criminal sexual conduct of not more than 20 years, a $35,000 fine, or both and for manslaughter in the first degree, 15 years, a fine of $30,000 or both. Now stand convicted of said crimes upon your plea of guilty and being represented by competent counsel and being now called for sentence. It is ordered and adjudged by the court, and the judgment and sentence of the court is that as punishment for said crimes for which you stand convicted, that you be committed to the Commissioner of Corrections of the State of Minnesota for a period of 108 months and 86 months respectively, said sentence to be served consecutively, however concurrently with the sentence now being served in the State of Texas.
dated 25th day of August, 1989. Judge J.W. Schindler, Judge of District Court. Coming up on Shadows of the Midwest, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5. Who is Jane Doe? And is the right man in prison? Thank you for listening to Shadows of the Midwest. And please remember to leave a like or review on your favorite podcast platform. Also visit our YouTube page along with our Facebook page for additional in-depth information and updates. Additional music was provided by Matt Webb and the Hutchinson Effect. Shadows of the Midwest was written and produced by Joe Kistner and a production of Just Past Nowhere Productions, LLC, 2023.